Welcome to the Spit It Out podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Avi Robbins. We are bringing you engaging discussions with thought leaders from academia and industry as we explore everything from what's in your saliva to why it's a good indicator of your overall health. Join us as we raise awareness around what saliva can tell us, why it's important for the future of healthcare, and what some really awesome people are doing about it today. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Chamindi Punyadira from Griffith University in Australia. Professor Chamindi is a distinguished innovator and dedicated advocate for women in STEM. With a unique hybrid career spanning both industry and academia, she has most recently joined Griffith University, where she holds a joint appointment between the faculties of science and health. Leading Griffith's salivary diagnostics and liquid biopsy laboratory, Chamindi focuses on developing biomarkers particularly in heart failure and cancer, from concept to commercialization, driving precision health. Professor Punyadira's PhD is from the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa and exploring type 2 diabetes, ischemic heart disease, and obesity. Her talents earned her the Academic Excellence Scholarship and support from the South African Medical Research Endowment Fund. Following her PhD, she conducted a four-year postdoc fellowship at the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands in partnership with Merck Pharmaceuticals, focusing on endometrium physiology, steroid hormones, and oncology. Dr. Punyadira later served as a senior scientist at Royal Philips Electronics in the Netherlands, where she played a vital role in developing cardiac disease detection technology for Philips Electronics and contributing to the Ideala nucleic acid detection platform commercialized later by Biocardis. Professor Punyadira went on to lead a dynamic team at the Queensland University of Technology in Australia, where she developed non-invasive and minimally invasive technology platforms poised to transform 21st century healthcare. Her contributions include over 130 research papers, 20 worldwide patents, paper reviews, keynote lectures at major conferences, and she serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Oral Oncology. Her commitment to pushing scientific boundaries and advocating for diversity in STEM continues to have a profound impact on research and healthcare. Please join me in welcoming the distinguished Professor Punyadira to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shamindi. Thanks, Evie, for inviting me. You really have quite a diverse background and your accomplishments thus far are very profound. I wonder if you could just give us a quick highlight of you know, the journey you took from industry to academia and what led your initial passions in industry and then the switch to academia. Thanks, Evie. So I did a postdoc at Maastricht University, and at that time it was with Merck Pharmaceutical. So it was an industrial postdoc. And I got to spend a lot of time at, then it was called Organon Pharmaceuticals in Oz. And I kind of really enjoyed working in industry and academia. And then I took the leap and jumped into industry where I worked at Philips Electronics for almost four years and I was leading biosensor platforms and then decided for family reasons to move to Australia. So I came to University of Queensland and I started a postdoc study. It was not easy jumping from industry into academia. As you would appreciate, the KPIs for industry and academia are totally different. Academia is driven by publish or perish, whereas industry is more patent families and then focused on product development and translation. So I battled in the first few months to get my head around academia because I didn't have a strong track record to be competitive in a pure academic environment. I do recall in end of 2009, I applied for a fellowship 
to Queensland government and then the fellowship scheme was uh, known as Smart State Fellowship. I had lots of difficulties trying to convince my director to put my application forward because he thought that the application didn't have legs to stand on. The application okay. was to use saliva as a non-invasive diagnostic tool to early detect heart failure. I do recall I did have some preliminary <laughs> data where we had measured salivary C-reactive protein, which is a common inflammatory marker, although it's not directly related to heart failure, but it gives an indication of inflammation. And I also demonstrated that there is a strong correlation between saliva and blood. Yet, to cut a long story short, so I submitted my fellowship application and I should actually shout out to the Queensland government because the scheme was more tailored towards commercialization and product development. As such, I received $600,000 from Queensland government in 2010 to start my own research group on salary diagnostics. And the journey has not been easy because in the US and Europe, a lot of people are working in salivary research. However, in Australia, when you are the pioneer and you're starting something, it's difficult because it's frowned upon by even the government agencies who are funding research because going back 10 years, they didn't see the value of saliva. Lo and behold, one of the positive things about COVID-19 pandemic is that yeah. everyone started to appreciate the power of non-invasive testing and especially salivary diagnostic. Even my dad, who is now 84 years old, he understands an antigen test is less sensitive compared to a PCR test. So with that, I got lots of funding <laughs> for saliva <laughs> testing, but it was a struggle in the beginning. Now I think I'm really passionate about translating and developing the next generation of leaders in this space because... I want to retire. Once I retire, who would take on the baton and lead the research that I started? I just don't want that to die. So I'm in that space now trying to develop early career, mid-career researchers in my team to take the baton next. I think that's wonderful. And when we were in the middle of the pandemic, I think we saw a lot of the research coming out of Australia, right? I would say from my side of the water, it seemed like Australia was taking some leaps to be some of the first people to accept saliva when the US FDA was really trying to find a way to ensure that they could get comparison to nasal pharyngeal. So happy that you were there doing the work you were doing, for sure. And, you know, really looking forward to the next generation of leaders that you're helping to develop. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're focusing on now? I know you switched to cardiovascular focus and cancer markers in saliva. How is that going? And are yeah. there some interesting findings that you've had recently? So I'll just tell you, the funding scheme in Australia is called National Health and Medical Research Council funding. It's like your NIH funding scheme. So 220 and 221, after going to the NHMRC for eight years, I managed to get funding from the NHMRC. And that's okay. one is to develop a point of care test to predict outcomes in patients with heart failure. About 20 to 30 percent of patients who are discharged, they get readmitted. And the cost is, is like $109 billion. How do we stop that? And 
50% of them sadly pass away. So yeah. the program that I'm leading is trying to develop a test that can be at the point of care in a cardiology unit using salivary galactin-3 as a biomarker to stratify the risk of rehospitalization versus non-hospitalization. So that's one of the programs that's been funded currently and it's ongoing. And the other program is on head and neck cancers. And the reason why I got into head and neck cancers, which is the seventh most common cancer, and mm -hmm. there are two major types, oral caused by smoking and excessive alcohol consumption, or a pharyngeal or the throat cancers caused by high-risk human papillomavirus. It's the okay. same virus that causes cervical cancers when it's residing in the throat area, it gives rise to oropharyngeal or throat cancers. And in 2005, my brother-in-law went to GP because he could not swallow. He went to GP, GP referred him to ENT, and he was diagnosed with head and neck cancer, stage four. And when he was seen, he test metastasized and he had brain and lung meds. Mm -hmm. Sadly, less than six months, he passed away. And that's the time I didn't even know to begin with head and neck brain tumors, what's even the difference between these right. two? And because these cancers are in the mouth, I didn't need too much of convincing because the markers yeah, are secreted into, sure. into yeah. saliva earlier than going into blood. So we started this program to early diagnose head and neck cancers as well as predict outcome, monitor patients disease surveillance using salivary HPV as a biomarker. We have actually multiple breakthroughs. So one of the breakthroughs came when I was working with Johnson & Johnson. So at that time, before COVID, they were developing a HPV therapeutic vaccine and they wanted companion diagnostics. They were interested in the population who have oral HPV because right. that's what they were going to target with a therapeutic vaccine. And as part of that study, we recruited 660-odd healthy controls from University of Queensland Dental School. And the reason why we picked dental school is that they come from low socioeconomic backgrounds, which means that they have high periodontal disease and open wounds. So open wounds leads to higher infection. That was our working hypothesis. Okay. We found 12 of them to have oral HPV. So the oral HPV prevalence in that particular cohort was about 2%. Three of them had persistent HPV, which means that the body can't get rid of the virus. Okay. They are the at-risk group for developing HPV-driven throat cancers. And it took me like eight months to get the ethics approvals. And we managed to get all three of them to be seen by ENT surgeons so they can do narrowband imaging and they can do MRI scans. The first one still comes. He had very low levels of HPV, so there are no abnormalities. The second one is a lady. She had four premalignant lesions, and she told me that a year before she lost her husband to HIV and it's not cervical lesions. Okay. Third one is an interesting case. He was a retired teacher and he was working in Thailand and he said he had a very colorful past and he <laughs> decided to undergo ENT examination where the surgeons found like abnormalities in the tonsillar area, but that doesn't mean you have cancer. He was okay. then referred to MRI scans and the MRI scans came negative. 
but our saliva was giving high copy number values. He was given the choice to decide whether he wanted to have a tonsillectomy or not. He decided to have a tonsillectomy, and that's the first time we detected a two millimeter occult cancer at the back of a throat of a healthy asymptomatic person. So wow. that's really important because Powerful. that's the foundation to start a screening program. So for cervical cancer, there is a screening program and it's easy to do cervical swabs. We've been doing pap tests, but Australia has now gone on to HPV testing and we do once in five years. But for the throat, how do you take a brush? I mean, you can't do it. So saliva actually is the tool. And now I'm trying to get funding to do a screening program. So target at-risk people and ask them to do salivary sushi and gargle and see whether if you are persistent, what can you do intervene before they develop cancer? Think of this person who just yeah. had a simple tonsillectomy for $2,000 worth, no radiation, no chemotherapy. And two weeks later, when he came, the salivary HPV was negative. And we've been testing up until I think last year. He sadly passed away. He did not pass away from cancer, but I think he had a heart attack or something. So we've been following him up until that time. And the reason why MRI did not pick it up is MRI resolution is five millimeter. This cancer was two millimeter. Mm -hmm. So you can think and the power of saliva for early detection, you can prevent cancer happening. So yeah. that's one of the exciting aha moments, you know, because I do recall that year I didn't get any of my funding. I was so down. My ENT consultant rang me up. He said, hop onto the bus and come. And then he <laughs> did not tell me anything. I looked under the microscope. I just could not believe it. And it was confirmed by an anatomical pathologist as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's incredible, right? The real power of what you can detect something early in saliva and save lives, right? To your point too, it really can make a very different economical impact on the healthcare system, right? For treatments and everything that would subside, right? So Australia, like US, right? Large country, continent. And most of the people live in the cities, but a lot of others like Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander communities do not live in the city, but comorbidities are high. How do we bridge the gap in healthcare delivery between the city and the rural remote communities? I do feel the pain because I grew up in Africa, a country called Botswana. I do recall for me to get routine dental checks, we had to drive like two, three hours. Think of that. I mean, not everyone can do that. So how can we cater? I mean, I'm a firm believer of equitable healthcare access to all. Yes. How can we treat or how can we diagnose people who are also living in rural remote communities who don't have access to sophisticated mm -hmm. instruments? Okay. What do you believe is the answer? Is it through low cost, easy to do at home kind of screenings tools? Yes, low cost at home and where they can collect a saliva sample and post it to wherever it needs to be tested. Okay. And then it's go to a lab somewhere, but easy to collect and send it out. And right. also another angle is to have a point of care testing, just like a pregnancy test. Yes, no sure. answer, right? You don't need quantities. Yes, no, whether you have persistent HPV. If you are worried, then you go to general practitioner, get a letter and get a referral letter to an ENT. Right.
the issue with HPV driven screening. Yeah. Yeah. HPV driven oropharyngeal cancer patients is that prognosis is good, but 20 to 30% of them develop recurrences. As mm. you know, a patient doesn't die from a primary cancer, they die from metastasis. Yeah. How can we stop that? Where are you in the process for so, you know, the bigger screening program? Yeah, I applied trying for, to secure funding still. Yeah, I applied twice. I have given up because only thing the comments come back, yes, you have shown in one person. So I said, yes, we have shown it in one person. We have now laid the foundation. Give mm-hmm. me the funding to demonstrate that it can be used as a clinical tool to early yeah. pick because we need to do at least 5,000 at-risk individuals. So I never give up, but I kind of given up and I'm now looking at philanthropy who can actually fund a screening program in yeah. Australia. It's a good angle. Okay. Well, we'll definitely try to promote the awareness, right? So we can find the right match. I think a lot of times, like you're mentioning earlier, it's such an obvious tool, but really we need to develop the science, right? Not even develop it, but just perform the screenings and the tests and the samples to demonstrate that the power really is the way it seems. And so for me, we're on that kind of curve, I believe, where we just need to create more of this scientific evidence to bring more people along, right? True. And science speaks, right? We saw during COVID-19 pandemic, all these vaccines, right? First to market. Some of them failed because they had side effects. They killed people. And the other work is with one of my PhD students and where we were looking into salivary proteins and using that to early diagnose heart failure. So we identified a panel of proteins that can discriminate a control group from a late stage heart failure patient from an early stage heart failure patient so that we filed intellectual property and my previous university has assigned that IP to a company called ESN Clear. It's a startup company based in Australia. Well, that'll be exciting to see how they can bring that to market for sure. Yeah, but Australia is struggling for commercialization because we are the 2% of the GDP, right? (laughs) Unlike you guys. And it's always, but now the government is trying to put effort and money into commercialization. Is that part of the reason that you started Fragment Biotech? We started it just a month ago and we just established and we haven't done anything because we are all professors who are the co-founders and we'll like start somewhere, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it started off from a NHMRC, so National Health and Medical Research Council funded project where we were trying to develop a point of care test to early detect, you know, circulating tumor DNA in cancer patients. So that's where it started off. And then we did lots of validation and we are now in the final stages of filing IP and submitting the manuscript. We wanted to address a niche market. Mm -hmm. And these sensors can detect in 30 minutes circulating tumor DNA. And it's with my collaborators from RMIT, Professor Sharat Sriram, and he's an amazing engineer. So this whole technology is his baby. And I just went and applied that to our clinical context. We've just established it. We haven't done anything. It's the first step, right? It Uh, is the first step. What other exciting things have you come across or any, you know, words of advice for our listeners on, you know, what's the future of saliva and diagnostics? I think the future is very, very bright. 
for salivary diagnostics because one thing is to convince the public because public funds us, right? Our research is funded by taxpayer money. Public knows the difference between a PCR and an antigen test. So that is like achieving 80% of convincing the public for an alternative test. Not for every disease, like, you know, blood test for lymphoma or a blood cancer would not work for, I mean, a saliva test, right? It's going to be where the unmet clinical need is, like doing testing in rural remote field testing, doing testing for where you can't reach or access other parts of where the cancer is. For instance, lung cancer, right? It's very difficult to do biopsy in lung cancer patients. We have now used salivary DNA methylation as a biomarker panel to triage patients with benign lung nodules versus patients with malignant lung nodules. One of the other programs that I'm leading is on liquid biopsies. So liquid biopsy is the use of biomarkers present in body fluid be saliva blood, using it to diagnose, predict, monitor response to cancer patients. And Mm -hmm. in that field, we are using circulating tumor cells, circulating tumor DNA, exosomes. Some of the biomarkers are already present in saliva. We have the advantage of not only exploring these biomarkers in blood, we are now doing it in saliva as well. So in the liquid biopsy space, there will be saliva-based liquid biopsies coming into the market. Excellent. I've seen some of the early research, not all of it, because there's a lot going on in that space now, but it really does look like it's a promising alternative to some of the much more challenging ways to monitor for, you know, both the occurrence and reoccurrence of cancers. And especially, you know, it's interesting to me that some of the linkages between saliva and detecting early stage lung cancer. Yeah, it's really, really promising. I put a grant, a small grant, it gone in from stage one to stage two. So we are very hopeful that if we get that, it's a small pilot national study to demonstrate the efficacy of using salivary DNA methylation as a biomarker. Because you know that low-dose CT screening is already used, but there is a benefit of it, like 20-30%, but false positivity. So 96% false positivity mean that Even a person with a benign lung nodule gets exposed to radiation and gets unnecessary anxiety, gets all these medical follow-up unnecessarily. Salivary methylation will be a game changer in decision-making, whether it's a malignant or a benign lung nodule. Well, look, there's clearly a lot going on on this frontier for saliva diagnostics and early screenings of whether it's oral cancers, head and neck, like you mentioned, even detecting heart disease. It looks like you're really you know, trying to push the boundaries there in Australia, and I commend you for that and you know, the efforts you're putting in to try to advocate for the next generation of researchers. You know, I hope that we can help promote that effort and find the right philanthropic donors to match up for some of these screenings, because I think not only will it provide great outcome for those people that can participate, but like we were talking about, fund the next generation of the science that's needed to kind of carry this forward. As I always say, someone help me. So it's moving the baton around, right? Of helping one another is all about the humanity, right? That's why we are different to animals. (laughs) We help (laughs) one another. So I'm very passionate and especially for women in STEM. Because in Australia, it's a little different to probably in the U.S. that not a lot of women are doing sciences. Okay. How do we get more women into STEM fields? 
Yeah, I think you're providing a great uh, pathway and certainly a great role model for that. And I thank you sincerely for taking the time to share some of your insights with us and some of the advancements that you're making and you know, look forward to keeping in touch and seeing how the science moves. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Evie. Thanks for listening to the Spit It Out podcast. I'm your host, Avi Robbins. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on our journey to raise awareness about saliva diagnostics, the future of healthcare, and hear stories from some really awesome industry and academic leaders.